Fantastic. So, here we are, as Steve said at the start of the service, on the fourth part already of our series, We Are Church. And as we said in previous weeks, um, church, we believe, has got far more to do with who we are um, than it has to do with where we go, where we are, where we are on a, on a Sunday morning or through the week. And we love our church buildings, we love our nursery, we love the manor house, coffee shop, we love our community rooms, and we, we do our absolute best to be good stewards of the things that we've been given, but our identity, who we are as a church, is not in the bricks and mortar, but it's in the living stone that's Jesus Christ. And so when we started this series a couple of weeks ago, um, we looked at what it means to be Jesus-centered. Jesus said, I will build my church. And we believe that Tamworth Elim is first and foremost his church. And then the previous, the next two weeks have been a continuation really on that idea that we are Jesus-centered. So two weeks we spoke about what it means to be a loving church. And Jesus said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So essentially, if we want to be known as this Jesus-centered church, then we need to understand what it means to really love our neighbor as ourselves. And then last week, Steve spoke to us about what it means to be servant-hearted. And again, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as a Jesus-centered church, we try to do the same. And it was fantastic this morning, wasn't it, just to hear from Tina about uh, the night shelter and about the the many people that volunteered and served. um, And you said, you know, they did the the menial things. But sometimes that's what service is all about. It's about making ourselves low to lift other people up. People that would normally be trampled in society being lifted up. And I think that's wonderful. (coughs) I think that's very much our heart. So this week's topic is also to do with being Jesus-centered, but perhaps in a slightly different way um, than previously. So this week's topic is this, it's that we are Bible loving. Not that just we're loving, but we're Bible loving. And my aim this morning is um, to convince you of that truth so that when you leave church you want nothing more than to go home, sit down and read your Bibles all afternoon. Okay? That's what I'm hoping for. So if you don't feel that way at the end, just lie. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So we're Jesus-centered, and Jesus was, of course, Bible-loving. In Mark 7, Jesus refers to Scripture as the Word of God. Matthew says he calls it the command of God. And in his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law um, or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen by any means will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus has this really high view of Scripture. However, the Bible that Jesus had was not the Bible that we have. Jesus had the Hebrew Bible, which is um, what we refer to now as our Old Testament. The first two-thirds, really, of the Bible as we have it. And the New Testament, the second half of our Bible, was written after Jesus. And it tells us about his life, and it tells us about the life of the early church. 
So on the one hand, we are Bible-loving because Jesus was Bible-loving and um, we're a Jesus-centered church. And on the other hand, we are Bible-loving because it is our source of information concerning Jesus. So for those that are perhaps a little bit new to the faith, let me just take a minute or two and explain a little bit of the background of this book for you. The Bible, the word Bible actually means books, and it's a collection of 66 different books that are recorded over 16 centuries by more than 40 human authors. And each of these authors has a very different style of writing. The writers um, included uh, kings, there we go, uh, fishermen, priests, government officials, farmers, shepherds and doctors. And each of them wrote, as I say, in a very different style. They wrote books of law, historical books, books of poetry, books of song, books of prophecy, books of wisdom and epistles, which is a fun word to say and a fancy way of saying letters. <laughs> but all of that diversity contained in this, this collection of books, it just tells us one story. And it's the story of God's relationship with, with humanity, God's relationship with us. And the central character of our Bible is Jesus. Steve uh, mentioned a few weeks ago that the whole book, the whole Bible, when we were talking about being Jesus-centered, is really about him. You know, the Old Testament, it, it sets the stage for his entrance to the world, and it predicts his coming, and then the New Testament tells about his coming, his ministry on earth, um, his work of salvation amongst us. And really... Perhaps one of the biggest truths that we hold to in this church is that this book that we have is God's word to us. That's what we believe. And we believe that this book has the power to change people's lives for the better. When Steve and me stand up here on a Sunday, the information that we try to communicate to you is from this book. We spend a great deal of time reading it and studying it uh, and trying to communicate it to you because we believe that it has the power to change your life for the better. Of course, you don't need me and Steve to do that for you. I'm sure most of you have Bibles and you can get access to Bibles online. Any of you can read it for yourself and find its transforming power for yourself. In fact, if you have a Bible app on your phone, you no longer need to even read it. You click a button and it will read itself to you. Isn't technology wonderful? But I understand why you don't always read your Bible. Because I don't always read my Bible either. And sure, my job necessitates that I, I have to read it for preparing Bible studies and sermons. And God often speaks to me as I do that. But that's different from reading it for my own spiritual well-being. And it can be hard sometimes. And so this morning, I just want to remind us of the reasons why we should be reading this book every day. And I want to encourage you and myself to do it all the more. So I'm going to just give you two very simple reasons. You know me, I'm a simple guy. I only ever really make simple points um, about why we should be reading our Bibles. And they are um, these. It tells us who we are and it shows us how to live. I don't think this click is working very well today, guys. There we go. Thank you. It tells us who we are. And it shows us how to live. Okay, these are the two points that I want to make to you this morning. So, if you happen to fall asleep from this point on, at least now you've had the headlines. Jot them down and you'll be okay. 
So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah. There's a challenge. Where's Nehemiah? It's in the Old Testament. It's about a third of the way through your Bible. It's in between Ezra and Esther. I've said that the, um, as you're finding it, I'll just give you a little bit of history to this book. So I've said that all the books in the Bible are written by different people in different styles. So what sort of book is Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah is really a sort of historical um, memoir, if you like. It's set at the end of the, the history concerning the nation of Israel. So that's God's chosen people in the Old Testament. God's holy people. And things, I mean... To be honest, they've not been going very well for the nation of Israel. They've become divided amongst themselves into northern and southern kingdoms. Um, and things have gone really bad for the north. They've been obliterated by the Assyrians. And they've not gone much better for the south, who've been invaded by the Babylonians. Who've, the Babylonians have destroyed the temple and they've carried the people off into exile. And essentially, all of this... Bad stuff befalls the people of God because they've chosen to turn their back on him. They've walked away from their God. And right at the start of, it, of the book of Nehemiah, um, we, we find Nehemiah praying this prayer. Um, this is what he says. He says, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we've sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. And so, in the book of Nehemiah, we find this is, about, this is about 50 years later. This is 50 years after they've been taken off into exile. And, and Nehemiah is just suddenly, just now realizing that things are not as they should be. I mean, probably they needed to have gotten a clue a little bit earlier, before the temple was destroyed and they were carried off. Um, but he just suddenly realizes that, that things aren't as they should be. They've lost... Their city, they've lost their land, they've lost their, their national identity. But most importantly, they've lost their identity in God. And they've become, really, they've become defined by how far away from God they've moved. And so, the book of Nehemiah and also the book of Ezra, because originally they were just one scroll, one story, they tell us of the efforts of three people who are trying to bring the nation of Israel back to their identity in God, to rediscover what it means to be God's people. There's three people, a guy called Zerubbabel, another fun word to say, um, Nehemiah and Ezra. And Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, they make efforts to restore um, Israel's national identity. Zerubbabel leads a whole bunch of people back and sets about rebuilding the temple. And Nehemiah sets about rebuilding the city walls. And he does that to bring people together, to create a sense of unity and community. But Ezra... Ezra's main responsibility was the spiritual well-being of the people of God. So I want you to turn with me, if you've managed to find it, um, to chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And I want to read to you this morning um, from the, the New Living Translation. And I, oh, brilliant, it's up on the screen, if you haven't got your Bibles with you. I'm going to read from uh, verse 1. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So the people, um, the people are unified. Um, all that hard work on the walls has brought them together with Nehemiah. Um, and they, they ask Ezra, and here, here Ezra is called a scribe. 
And we, we don't really have scribes anymore, but a scribe is someone that was responsible for copying out by hand the Word of God, the Bible as they had it then. They didn't have photocopiers back in the day, so he literally had to sit down and copy all that. So he knew his Bible pretty well. And they asked him to bring out the Law of Moses, which for us in our Bibles is the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the same words that we have in our Bibles today. Verse 2. So on October 8, Ezra, the priest, and it's the same guy, he just had two jobs, um, brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand. It's a bit like church, really, isn't it? He faced the square just inside the water gate, and from early morning until noon, and read aloud everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. So listen, early morning till noon. That's, that's another way of saying sort of first light till middle of the day. That's about six hours. Six hours of solid Bible reading. All right? So if ever you feel that me and Steve go on a bit on a Sunday morning, I just want you to remember Ezra and his six hours of Bible reading. And the remarkable thing, it says that the people listened closely. Okay? Are you listening closely today? In the next few verses, they just sort of explain the stage set up. So I'm going to skip them and go down to verse 8. It says this. They read from the book of the law and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people to understand each passage. It gave a sermon, essentially. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, see, same person, and Levites who were interpreting it for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is sacred, a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now, the cynical among you may say, well, yes, if I'd listened to the Bible for six hours, I'd be weeping as well. But as we read on, and as we understand this chapter, what we find is that God is speaking to his people through the words that are found in the scriptures. God was beginning to change their hearts and bring them back to their identity in himself. And the next chapter, we read, as we read on, we find out that there's this time that they have of repentance. And we, as we know, repentance means turning away from one thing and, and turning back to another. So through the reading of God's word, they start to turn back to God. And they're spiritually renewed through the words contained in this book. This book that we have today. And it's fascinating. I think, you know, we live in a world, don't we, where the Bible is viewed with great suspicion. People see this as a, an antiquated rule book that has little or no relevance in our lives today. And we tend to think of this as a, a modern problem because we live in this enlightened age where we understand more but actually, this is the same problem that Nehemiah was having 2,500 years ago. The people had walked away from God. And one of the reasons they'd done that, one of the ways in which they'd done that, was that they had stopped reading God's word. They'd stopped hearing God's voice through the scriptures. So when Ezra opens God's word and explains what it says to the people, they're reminded who they're supposed to be as God's chosen people. And they can suddenly see how far away they've moved from God and they start to weep. They're convicted in their hearts and they repent and they turn back to him. 
And the leaders say, don't mourn or weep for such a day as this, uh, for this is a sacred day before the Lord. And then they do this classic church move. I love this. Brilliant. Look, first turn, they say, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks. They put on a lunch. <laughs> Nothing changes. They've had the church service. They put on a lunch. Um, but really, they're trying to love and encourage the people back to God. But it's the word of God that reminds them of who they're supposed to be. And you see that. It's the word of God that speaks to their hearts. We just jump to the New Testament for a minute. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And the Bible, we believe, I believe, the Bible has the power to speak to the very heart of us. of who we are and who we were made to be. I just wonder where we're at with this this morning. Is God speaking to the heart of us through his word? Because the thing is, if you want to know who God wants you to be, then you need to get into his word. You need to read this book. God is desiring to speak to us through his word. And it's no good saying, oh, God never speaks to me. God never says anything to me. Yeah, he does. He's written over 700,000 words to you in this book. I once heard someone put it this way. I think this is, this is brilliant. Um, wondering why God isn't speaking to you and not reading your Bible is like walking around with your phone on aeroplane mode and wondering why no one is calling you. <laughs> and you know, sure, on some occasions, God is going to speak to our heart. He's going to drop things into our heart. He might give us a word for someone. He might just lead us by his spirit to see something. But 9.9 times out of 10, the way that God speaks to us is through his word. It's true. And so the Bible, it tells us who we're supposed to be. But it also tells us what we're supposed to do. There's a brilliant bit, just a little bit further down uh, in this chapter, in verse 13. I'll just put that up for you. It says, on October 9, um, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and the Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. <laughs> so, so it's a day later, right? Um, and this is brilliant. It's, they've suddenly realized, oh, the word of God is great. It's speaking to our hearts. It's changing us. What, what should we do now? I know, let's have a Bible study, okay? Nothing changes really, does it? <coughs> they've had the church service, they've had their lunch, now they're having a Bible study. Um, and then verse 14, it says, As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. Okay? So they're having this Bible study together, and then one of them's like, Hey guys, it's, it says in here that we're, we're supposed to be... Um, Supposed to be living in shelters this month. Do you think we should do something about that? And another one's like, nah, I think that's probably a, a metaphor. You know, the, the shelters are our hearts, isn't it? And they're like, well, I don't know, Keith, it's pretty explicit. <laughs> it, says, uh, it says here, for seven days you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. Leviticus 23, 42. It's right here. And so they're like, okay, well, let's build some shelters then. And they do it. They actually start to do the things that God has asked them to do. Now, before you start um, gathering sticks for October, 
Unless you're a native-born Israelite or really like camping, you're, you're exempt. It's okay, all right? But what we're not exempt from is the words of Jesus. Okay, we're a Jesus-centered church. Would you turn with me to Matthew um, 28, please? I'm just going to read you the words of Jesus. And this is, this is after his crucifixion, this is after his resurrection, and this is some of Jesus' final words um, to his followers. These are very famous words. Um, verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll, those words are very familiar to you. But I just want you to look at, at verse 20 in particular this morning. It says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus asks his closest disciples to be about the business of telling others to live the way that he lived and showing them how to do the things that he did. And Jesus' followers did this in, in a couple of ways. Very much like Ezra, they stood up and they told people the things that God had said, firstly through the Old Testament scriptures and then secondly through the person of Jesus. And the other way they did it was they wrote it down. And as they told people about Jesus, little communities, little churches formed and so the apostles, they wrote them letters explaining to them and teaching them how they could do the things that Jesus did, obey everything he taught them. And then the writings, the, the Gospels, the writings on Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and the letters, they're what form our New Testament. And we are able to learn how to live for Jesus through the obedience of Jesus' disciples. It's all here for us in this book. Okay? And sometimes, you know, the other complaint I think we make alongside God isn't speaking to me is, I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. I don't know. And the answer is the same. It's here. It's written down for you in the Bible. And if you want to learn how to live for God, if you want to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, then this is where you begin. This is what Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy, sorry, um, about it. He says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I love the imagery that Paul uses in this passage to talk about Scripture. This idea that Scripture, the Bible, God's word to us is God-breathed. And my guess is he wants us to think about, um, right back at the start of the Bible in the story of creation, Genesis chapter 2, where it says, God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And he breathes life into us and he breathes life into his word. That's brilliant, isn't it? And then Paul tells us that that word has a purpose in our life. There's a point to it. It's there to teach us, to rebuke us and correct us. That's what happened, isn't it, in Nehemiah's day. They, were, they felt rebuked and corrected and they repented and turned back to him. And then it says to train us in righteousness. To train us in the right way to live. How to do the right things. And we train not by going to the gym, I mean obviously that's the case for me, um, but we train by reading his word. And it says the result, according to Paul, is that we become thoroughly equipped for every good work, to live as Jesus did, to bless as he did, to become the people that God wants us to be. And, you know, this doesn't mean that we become more right with God, 
more acceptable to him. That only comes because of what Jesus has done for us. He's the, we're only made right with God through Jesus. What it means is that we become more the people that God intends for us to be. We become more like Jesus. We more accurately reflect him in the world. It's that we grow into his righteousness for us. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah. They're once again slowly becoming the people that God intended them to be. And we do that by reading his word and learning how we're supposed to live. James writes about it this way. James 1, 22-25 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, will be blessed in what they do. Now, Steve talked to us about being blessed last week a little bit, didn't he? And if we're blessed, then we are happy and content and whole and in the right place and, and fulfilled because we're living the way that we're supposed to be living. And if we only ever read this book, if we only ever look at the Bible as a way of gaining more knowledge or more wisdom, then we're missing the point. It's like looking in the mirror in the morning and seeing the sleep in your eyes and your hair's a mess and your makeup smudged and doing nothing about it. The Bible is full of directions on God on how we can change our lives for the better, but we have to be prepared to do something about it. So the Bible tells us who we are, and it shows us how to live. And that's why we're a Bible-loving church. We believe that the Bible is our compass. It tells us where we are and where we need to go. I'm nearly done, but I just want to read you a final passage from the Bible. Just to kind of bring us full circle this morning, we started talking about the nation of Israel being far away from God because of their rejection of his word. Now listen to what... Um, Again, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to any knowledge of the truth. I think, I mean, does that sound familiar? I think that's very much the world that we're living in today. And it was, I was just struck with that last bit of verse 7, always learning, but never able to come to any knowledge of the truth. Do you know that we are privileged this morning because we have the truth for us, contained in this book, the word of God to us? But is that the way that we treat this book? Is it the most important voice in our lives? Is it the loudest voice? Is it the closest voice to us? Is this the truth that we live by, or do we live by another truth? Is our Bible our constant companion, or is it more like an occasional friend? Or maybe even like a distant cousin that you only see at Christmas. 
Mahatma Gandhi said this. He said, you Christians, look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it's nothing more than a piece of literature. If that's not a challenge to us this morning, then I'm not sure what is. See, we're Bible-loving because it shows us who we are. It shows us that we're God's children. You know, Jesus died for you. Do you know that? How do you know that? You know that because it's in here. It tells us that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. That's who we are, God's beloved children. And it shows us how we are to live our lives, how to be the people of God, how to be blessed, to be happy, to live in the right way. So I just want to finish this morning with a couple of just really super, super practical tips. Because I've spent a long time talking about how fantastic this book is, but I fully acknowledge that this is a difficult book to understand sometimes. It can be a hard book to get our heads around, and sometimes we read things and we find it confusing. So I just want to give you a few tips um, on how to read your Bible, how to understand it um, better. So if you are old school, um, you can pick up an actual physical paper booklet doesn't go on your phone, um, from our foyer, completely free. These are a few. The word for today, it's called. Um, and this gives you a reading from the Bible for every day of the entire year with someone telling you what it means and telling you a little story to make you feel good about what you've just read. Um, it takes less than a minute to read. I keep mine next to my bed so that when I plug my phone in, I can think, actually, I've spent more time looking at my phone than reading my Bible today and then feel convicted and, and read it. Um, so they're great, and you can take one of those. If you're new school, rather than old school, you can get some apps. Um, the Uversion Bible app is probably the best. It has 49 different translations on the app. And so if you're stuck on a passage, you can read it in another translation. It contains loads of Bible reading plans. You can even join up with friends and do Bible reading plans together. If you've got friends on the app, it tells you what Bible reading plans they're doing, which can be quite revealing if you're nosy. Um, <laughs> Another great app is the Alpha Bible in a Year app. You can lay in bed and it's like Nicky and his wife are there with you. No, wait. That sounds weird. Um, what I mean is they, they talk about the Bible for you. They're not really there. <laughs> and there's great apps for kids as well. The, the Bible app um, for kids. It's, it's cut off the title, but it's called the Bible app for kids from Life Church. It's really, really good. Um, another amazing resource that I've come across recently, you can find on YouTube, if you just search for The Bible Project. Um, they provide an overview for every book of the Bible in less than 10 minutes. And it tells you what sort of book is, how you can read it, what the pitfalls of that particular book is, where there's confusing bits, it tells you about that as well. And it offers a whole Bible reading plan on there as well. But I really recommend watching some of The Bible Project videos because um, they're, they're brilliant, they're fantastic. Um, and the, other, the final thing, the final tip really, is just find an opportunity in the week to study the Bible together. Because it can be difficult, it can be challenging. If you're not in a life group, why not join a life group and come together and look at the Bible together? Because I get so much, I get so much more when I sit in a room full of other people and they say, well, you know, actually, God said this to me through this passage. I'm like, yeah, I never saw that. I understand that now. So join a life group, get together. If you don't want to join a life group, maybe just get together with a couple of friends from church and study a book together. Because remember, this has the power to change our lives. Okay, I'm done. Um, the band want to come up. I'm going to just pray for us as we close.
and hopefully you're all going to leave and run home to read your Bibles. <laughs>